taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Welcome to 3CR Spoken Word. We acknowledge that we broadcast from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. My name is Waffle Iron Girl, 3CR Spoken Word's newest member. Today's program is an interview with Anders Vellani, a NARM Melbourne poet who talks about his upcoming collection, Totality. It's a powerful and intentional collection, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Thank you, Anders Vellani, for coming in to 3CR Spoken Word and to introduce us to your beautiful book, Totality. I'm holding it in my hands right now. Um, would you like to describe its look and feel? It's a pretty special looking book. Sure. Well, first, thanks so much for having me, Waffle. It's a real pleasure to be here. So the book was designed by my friend Tyler Arnold, who's an award-winning painter. The cover is sort of an original sketch of his. This one depicts a kind of pastel dog in the center of what look to be kind of little abstract shapes. Those represent sort of celestial bodies, given the book's structured by solar eclipses. Mm. The sections are named for cycles of solar eclipse. And the dog kind of represents, if you're going to simplify it, a kind of notion of masculinity that can either be controlled and tamed and treated well, or that can turn feral and dangerous in a way that I think the book studies or inquires into. That is actually a really beautiful introduction to the contents of this book. I think that now we've got a taste of the cover. Would you like to read to start us off? Sure. I'll read to the all-powerful. Climb the bunk ladder and make me selfish. How many birch sprigs should I gather? Climb the bunk ladder and make me selfish. How many cypress sprigs should I gather? Make me selfish. Grant me a founding. How many birch sprigs should I gather? The millipede wishes to wake a spiral. How many cypress sprigs should I gather? Grant the millipede cause. Make me selfish. How many birch sprigs should I gather? The millipede wishes for Saturn to smell it. How many cypress sprigs should I gather? For Saturn to love it and Saturn to recoil from it. How many birch sprigs should I gather? Climb the bunk ladder and make me selfish. How many cypress sprigs should I gather? Climb the bunk ladder and make me selfish. How many birch sprigs should I gather? Thank you. You talked about masculinity and it's, uh, it feels like this book is uh, an exploration of masculinity um, from childhood through to adulthood. I'd say that captures some of the core theme of the book, definitely. Masculinity as sort of refracted through childhood trauma, through the reverberations of that trauma into adulthood, particularly adult relationships, uh, sense of intimacy, and this idea 
of, I suppose, physical power associated with the masculine that one can be both the victim of and a potential possessor of. And that complexity is probably the central inquiry in the book, if it has one. Two words that you've used to describe the book so far, reverberation and power. Mm. Uh, those two words were interesting to me because I felt like there was something in the book, an echo or a theme around saying something and not quite saying it. I wouldn't use the word secrets so much as hidden or unseen things. It's interesting that you wouldn't use the word secrets because I feel like notion of secrecy does perhaps capture the origins of some of these experiences that motivated the book. Uh, for me, the personal experiences, they were defined for a long time by having to be kept secret, or if they were to be articulated, they had to be articulated indirectly. You had to find other ways to, to express at least, you know, if not the specific content, then the feeling associated with it. Poetry for me, the more I reflect on it, it's probably been the art form that I've gravitated to because of its capacity to rove between very direct statement and very indirect statement. It's this ability to lay bare while also not necessarily revealing everything. There's a sense of clear revelation and there are moments where things become dense and things become resistant to clear saying and that all feels very pertinent to the way that these experiences occurred and the way that I've processed them personally over the years. I wrote this book in large part while studying for my PhD in creative writing and my thesis topic is how poetry represents trauma. So a lot of the reading that I was doing around that time um, centered around trauma studies and a lot of the writing I was doing was sort of informed or guided by that. So there was a really pleasing kind of iterative process that took place there. And this is a book that I would not have been able to write or at least complete in the way that it exists now had I not delved into that world of trauma, its etiology, its sort of historical context, other great books that represent personal trauma, had I not followed those leads at the critical level as well as the creative level. This is not a book that is you know, governed by concealment. It is governed by disclosure. I'm talking about these things in a way that five, six years ago, I actually never have thought possible so there's an immense sense of liberation in what I've been able to set down, even though it still feels like there's an enormous amount that I've withheld. It's the attempt to capture the phenomenology of trauma in part, what it actually feels like to negotiate that tension between wanting to talk and not wanting to talk in all its complexity. Well, Congratulations. It, it certainly is an achievement, I think, personally as well as in literary form. Do you think you'd like to read another one now? I'd love to. Smoke Alarm. A couple rents a pool house for the weekend in their own city. Bathrobes, scent diffusers, plug outlet and bamboo, bed lamps seized by voice, mini fridge riesling. Burgundy lace garter, shut out blinds, brochures on a side table. 
They role play with accents. Her Russian reminds him of his dad, who did a Cossack dance once. Body of the underpants frayed from the waistband like buttery shank from the bone. It's so the wax takes, he tells her, when he sticks his boots in the oven. It opens the pores. While she rubs her scars with silicon gel and gets her new bikini top right, he visits the garage. Guests don't have access. Twice, noise drops him in a cupboard under the workbench that smells of wood stain, shards of stiff, expanding foam fused, tooth-like, to the door. When it's real quiet, he licks salt, sand, off boogie-board fiberglass, half-drags some lilos off a shelf. The spa is heated to 41, like her favourite pool at the hot springs, and her hand drips the skyline from it. There's a brochure for the hot springs. Nothing on the person caught with signets slaughtered by the billabong. Nothing about how one night in the hilltop pool, a ringtail possum neared the edge to drink. She seized his arm and he recoiled, apologised, praised the ringtail. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm on 3CR 855 AM Homeless in Hotels a 3CR supporter This is 3CR Spoken Word and we've been talking to Anders Vellani about his beautiful book Totality I have to say that one of the highlighted lines in this book, and there are many, um, is that one where her hand drips the skyline. It's a beautiful image. Thank you. Um, that poem just captures so much of moments where you're not quite sure you're witnessing, you know, the gods um, in, in their playground or two seemingly ordinary people in what sounds like an Airbnb, I think. Yeah, when I was planning the structure of the book, I had been reading about mythology from around the world associated with solar eclipses, ancient Chinese, indigenous Australian, Vietnamese, Serbian. And what was fascinating to me is that there was a kind of inconsistency as to whether the alignment of the moon and the sun represented something loving or something violent. Some myths, they would make love and others, it would be a dragon or a giant wolf or a giant frog in a Vietnamese myth that was consuming the sun. And uh, that sort of sense of violence done to the sun suggests uh, perhaps one of the reasons why solar eclipses were viewed with great foreboding in ancient cultures. What felt so pertinent to me about the solar eclipse mythology for the book was this idea of alignment and misalignment of these two bodies that were always kind of, you know, in relation. And the idea that 
alignment could represent both something beautiful and something terrible. And so coupled with this attention to solar eclipse myth, there's a kind of porousness between what's highly realistic, what's dream, what's myth and so on. I think it was so for me in the rest of the book as well, though, uh, because throughout the book in Ganamata, for instance, all the landscapes that you people and populate seem at first to look like either mythical or alien landscapes, which are then populated by very you know, blood and flesh people. Can you tell me how, how that came to be? I think it speaks in a very basic sense to the way that I experienced childhood. Everything was mined for significance in what seems to me now to be an almost kind of symbolist-like desire to connect my outer world with my inner world. So those landscapes, you know, I had a very suburban, kind of mundane childhood, little backyard, but they were my mythic spaces as well. That was where my imagination sort of caught fire. So in, in that sense, I think um, I'm riding back to that deep resonance that everything holds for you know for a child in in their surroundings but um i guess you know that kind of reminds me of louise glick's observation that uh we only see the world once in childhood and everything else in his memory but there's another quote by terence depress who says that in situations of trauma symbols tend to actualize and i feel that that also carries some weight here where this is a book that is largely about this sense of threat that inhabits even safe places. And that threat is very nearly the same thing as a kind of awe, in a way. These landscapes carry this possibility of either safety or threat in their sort of material phenomena. I think I had a special request for a poem today. Would you um, indulge us? Sure. This is called... Moravian Eclipse Myth, and it's a crown of sonnets, but I think I'll read one, perhaps. Moravian Eclipse Myth. Seven women roam a caldera in the mountains. One starred in a 90s sketch comedy, wigged damsel Fabio strummed the lute for. One knows how arms at sea say, save me, above the waves and below. Her red one-piece's cut grooves her legs like the grooves in a unicorn's horns. One is a magician's assistant. One is Ace Ventura's girlfriend. Two are sisters on Full House. One, an actress who served in my school canteen, stands a head taller than the rest, neck choke-chained gold. Down on the flatlands, a villager gleans the scent. He climbs and looks. The formation resembles a deer hoof. I'm the leg. I maneuver the hoof to a lakeshore, swim it to an island castle. I loved that section. That's the third section of the book. And it was a wonderful mystery and surprise. Can you tell us more about um, the Moravian eclipse myth? Oh, and by the way, I googled it. Could not find much information. It's obscure, that's for sure. And any resemblance that this poem might have had to the original 
myth is pretty tenuous, I would say. But the myth itself concerns a cyclops who represents the sun. That myth sort of prompted this poem of mine that in some ways represents the sort of primary fusion of the mythic, the realist, the dreamlike, the childhood, the adulthood. This idea that the masculine, heterosexual desire for intimacy carries this possibility of becoming predatory in a way that I think was sharpened for me as a child through these experiences. This narrative of my own experience started to kind of fuse with a totally fantastical sort of appropriation of this old myth that I found in a, in a book of ancient eclipse myths back in a library in Michigan. So I'm not sure what it was. I don't know if I'd be able to track it down anymore, but the poem just kind of started to take on a life of its own. And it does feel very important to the overall structure of the book. And there are images that recur from this poem elsewhere, the Cyclops, but also other images. And this sort of transition that the villager in the first poem that I read out undergoes from passive observer in the first poem to by the end a hunter and also by the end the women have turned into deer there's not much more of a sort of a sense of foreboding that i can i can really think of in the book than than that process and that idea that that possibility in, in myself that i might become this hunter is something that i have to do everything in my power to avoid and to to escape from. If I may be self-indulgent, I think that that section was such a surprise and unconventional, but lovely because of that sense up until then of that mythic and the reality and flipping back and forth between there. Um, and it felt like watching a, a movie where you're um, feeling all this sense of foreboding watching a, a, a small boy grow up. Um, and then there's a break in the middle where um, the village stops and you're all sitting there watching them watch a play about the gods and, and what is the central themes and illustrates that. It was a beautiful surprise. Thank you for, for keeping that in there. Yeah, I actually probably shouldn't be saying this, but I had to fight my publisher to keep it in. He felt that it should go and I was very wedded to it. And after a few... Uh, emails of cajoling and also some compromises. I took a couple of other things out. He was willing to leave it in, but he, it was also his idea to include it as a whole in the middle of the book. I think maybe time for uh, another poem. I was thinking as I read that and I mentioned that the Cyclops are uh, sort of at the root of that myth that I might read one from towards the end of the book called The Last Poem. And there's an epigraph there by Maurice Blanchot. The first liberty is the liberty to say everything. The last poem. Midnight, courtyard, lamp lit, more day than the day. She sits opposite him. Houndstooth, brickwork, lends this, the air, the lounge of high fashion. Everything's in the open that should be. Those from whom parts had to be veiled sleep in warmth. 
the few who had to be devastated have found Disclosure's silhouette so graceful it's been nothing. A Felix Culper. No torched lives, no vestibule, no holding pattern. Where aggression has been pleaded for, the throat has ennobled it. The Monterey pine was never pickaxed, never wept its spearmint. Under the blood moon, deer shadows streak an open field, parallel to train tracks behind her. Again the blood moon brings the cyclops, whose eye seeks the spear, but he doesn't ask why again. Some choices aren't forgivable. Those who should know this do now and have borne it well, better than dreamt. Soft power has triumphed. Lamplight raises blemish from their skin, siliconizes it, dulls it. Laughter has no form to lodge. Their gazes meet. Mm. What do you think of forgiveness? That's a great question. If anything, the book almost finishes on uh, the sort of unanswerable question of forgiveness. This poem, the last poem, in some ways is another kind of mythic poem. It feels fantastical, but it's also this sort of impossible hypothetical that presents this scene between a man and a woman where all the complexities of the trauma that's kind of underlaid the relations up to this point have been settled in this perfect closure. And I think we all know, despite what our kind of popular myths and stories tell us this kind of arc of sickness to recovery or to, from ignorance to understanding there's this kind of linear passage towards closure we all know that it doesn't quite work that way and i think it's one of the beauties of poetry that it allows those contradictions to coexist without any need to settle them down closure might be a beautiful idea but it's also kind of fanciful i guess perhaps the role that forgiveness for a victim of trauma plays in the victim's recovery, it's actually difficult for me to, it's difficult for me to pass because it's partly this, this willingness to put the past in the past and perhaps this feeling that moving on is impossible without this notion of forgiveness. But at the same time, there are these, you know, strong feelings of, you know, accountability having to be taken on the other side that the book doesn't really engage in. I've sort of focused more squarely on, you know, my own experiences here, but that idea that to forgive is to heal to an extent does start to appear towards the end of the book. And it seems in some ways quite tied to the idea of being able to love and to receive love is to kind of necessarily have to learn how to forgive to an extent and at the heart of that is forgiving the self I would say the key notion of forgiveness here is forgiveness of the boy who went through those experiences in some ways failed the adult and allaying that sense of blame is at the core of what this book is trying to to put across I'm beginning to get the sense 
that grappling with these dualities, paradoxes really. I think the first you introduced at the start was this idea of love and violence, violence in love, love in violence. Um, and then you were talking about threat and safety, finding threat in safe places. And then we talked about the moon, the moon, the moon. And now we've settled back into this idea of forgiveness and love. We can't quite close the loop. And that gap is forgiveness. That's a beautiful way of thinking about it. And it's, it's a loop that I haven't yet been able to close in my own life. I was reflecting actually a little bit on some of these poems and very closely following this this kind of child figure who's very close to my own boyhood self. And while there's no explicit mention of this need to forgive him versus blame him, I think that each time I write a poem about that boy, it is itself an act of forgiveness in a way. It's lending his experiences a significance and seeing them from the outside rather than thinking about them as this internal force that has caused me such pain. Finding a way to imbue that child's experiences with a kind of nobility and an innocence is, I would argue, itself kind of an expression of, of, of forgiveness that I need to enact in my own life. In fact, at the end of my to-do list every morning, I write, bless the boy. And that, in a sense, is what I'm doing with those poems. That's beautiful. I personally might argue it is also an act of love. Yeah, I think so. Not just the capacity to love others, receive love from others, but the capacity to, to love the self. If there's no love for that child who became the person I am today, then I don't think a full-hearted self-love is possible. So I think you're right. A lot of this work is in some ways a testament to my belief that it's possible that I can love myself despite what happened. This is 3CR, Spoken Word, and we've been talking to Anders Vellani about his beautiful book, Totality. Can you tell us about where to get this book? Sure. So the best place to buy it is through the recent WordPress website. Uh, you can also visit my own website, andersvelani.com, or find me on Instagram. And I'll also be launching the book in Melbourne on the 10th of August at Capers Bar in Thornbury. And that'll be free and open to the public. I've got a couple of other fantastic readers organized for that night. Uh, thank you, Anders. Um, thank you for your time and your generosity in both in producing this work and talking to us. And good luck and have a great lunch. Thank you so much for having me. That was Anders Vellani. You can find out more about his collection, Totality, and his upcoming book launch at andersvellani.com. If any of the content of today's show raised issues for you, please reach out for help at lifeline 131114, 1-800-RESPECT at 1-800-737-732, or Men's Line Australia, 1-300-789978. This is 3CR Spoken Word, which comes to you at 8.55am every Thursday morning, 9am.
You can find a recording of today's interview on the 3CR Spoken Word podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash spoken dash word. Please support 3CR Community Radio by subscribing to the radio at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Thank you for listening.